As you will have seen uh, in the notices, the reading today can be found on page 59 of the Church Bibles, and it's Exodus 3, verses 1 to 15. Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from, oh, sorry. <laughs> Turned over two pages, sorry. And now the cry of the, of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the ways the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have bought, brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So please keep the passage open in front of you. Page 59, Exodus chapter 3. Uh, And just to say, I should have said in the church family news that um, it is great that for the Mark drama, we've got a full cast, uh, which is great. So 15 actors, uh, and it would be good to be praying for them as they prepare um, for that. They've got a fair bit to learn, um, and then uh, they've got three rehearsals and then the performances. So, uh, yeah, please be praying for them and for for the organisation of that, and be praying who we could be inviting. So it's going to be happening in November. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, please would you be our teacher. Help us to uh, understand this passage, to understand you better, to know you better, and to respond to you in our hearts and with our lives. Amen. So we come to the famous incident, don't we, of Moses and the burning bush. This is a vital turning point in Moses' life. As we come to the start of chapter 3, Moses is far from the Israelites. He grew up in Egypt, in Pharaoh's household, uh, where the Israelites, God's people, were slaves. But having murdered an Egyptian, having killed an Egyptian, he fled, fled Egypt out into the desert, as you heard last week when uh, John was preaching. He went out, left the Israelites into the wilderness, and he was there a long time. He married and had a son called Gershom, which means a foreigner there. And that is what Moses is at the start of chapter 3, a foreigner And he is there, out, away from the Israelites for 40 years, as we learn that in the book of Acts. And that is a long time to be away, isn't it? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years a foreigner. And then he has this encounter that we've just read, and from here his life will be changed. He will go from here and go to Egypt, back to Egypt, back to God's people in slavery there to rescue them, to lead them out of captivity. It's a big change. Now you might think at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of this sermon, so what? Okay, this happened over 3,000 years ago, Moses meeting God at this burning bush. So what? What relevance does it have for us? Uh, Someone has once suggested, I think they said in a Bible study on this, that one of the application questions was, what's your burning bush experience? Well, I mean, that may be an interesting question to ask, but the answer actually is, I've never had a burning bush experience. I've never experienced the Lord God speaking to me from a bush which looks to be on fire but isn't being consumed. And I don't think, I'm pretty confident nobody else here has had that experience. And actually, that's significant. None of us are Moses, are we? So we do need to ask well, what relevance is this to us? 
Well, there are lots of things that are relevant here, apart from uh, anything else. Of course, God is the same today as he was then. So anything that we learn of God then is still true of God today. But more than that, I want you to see there's a movement that happens in this chapter, which actually is a parallel to us. And the movement is this. We will see, and this is the sort of overview of where we're going with the sermon. You can see on the back of your notice sheet the plan for where we're heading. And there are two points. There are just two points. And they are these. Come and go. That is the movement that happens within this chapter. Uh, God calls Moses, or Moses goes to the burning bush. God, uh, Moses comes into God's presence. And then Moses is commissioned by God to go. You've got this movement, a kind of come, go. And that is a pattern that we see actually in lots of places in the Bible, people coming into God's presence and then going out. And it's a pattern which happens, it's a movement which happens for anyone when they become a Christian that we need to come to God and then we are commissioned by God to go out. It's also in our mission statement as a church. Our aim is for people to come to Jesus grow in him and go out to serve him. And as we see this movement happening in this chapter, we'll see that there is plenty actually that we can apply to ourselves. We're not Moses, but there's plenty actually to apply to us. Let me show you as we go through. So our first point is come. Come into the presence of God. And we need to go back to Moses here to see how this happens. Moses, by this stage, is probably about 80 years old. Again, you piece that together from the book of Acts later on in the Bible, that he's probably about 80 years old. So that's older than I normally imagined him to be when, he's, uh, when he sees this burning bush. And at this point, like I say, he's in the wilderness and he's leading his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness and he comes to Horeb called the mountain of God, which is the same as Sinai, where the people of God will come later on. This is uh, Sinai, Horeb, the mountain of God. And as you heard last week, as John said to you, it's interesting that Moses himself has his own mini exodus, doesn't he? he? I mean, it's stretched out over a long time, but he has his own mini exodus. He has left Egypt I mean, he kind of had to, but he'd left Egypt. He's now gone across the wilderness and he's meeting God at Horeb. And God speaks to him. And that is what's going to happen later on to the Israelites. They're going to leave Egypt, go across the wilderness, come to Horeb, to the mountain of God, and God is going to speak to them there. He's having his own little mini exodus. And who does he meet? Well, I've already said he meets with God. It says in verse 2, it's the angel of the Lord. But we see later on, this is God. Verse 4 says, When the Lord saw he'd gone over to look, God called him from the bush. So this is God he is meeting. He sees the bush, that it's on fire, but not burning up. And he goes to it. He goes towards the bush. And God calls to him from within the bush. Verse 4, God calls to him, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And then God immediately says, do not come any closer. He tells him to take off his sandals. Why? Because it is holy ground. Holy because the Lord God is appearing to Moses here. And as Moses hears God speak, 
it says he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now I want you to see here a tension. A tension between Moses coming to God, coming into the presence of God, and yet not being able to come into the presence of God. Do you see, it's like two forces that are working against each other. Moses is being drawn in, sees the bush on fire, goes towards it. God calls to him, Moses, Moses. But then you get this, don't come any closer. Don't come near. Take off your sandals. And he hides his face. There's a, there's a come and there's a can't come. A desire to draw near, but a repulsion as well that he can't. Why the drawing away? Why the stop there? Why the take your shoes off? Why the hiding of the face? Well, it is because of God's holiness. His absolute purity. We see that. The fact that God says actually the ground, it is holy ground because God is holy. You, you can't come near because of the holiness of God. His holiness being his purity, his perfect goodness. And with God we see his holiness is an active holiness. That is, God's holiness is such that if he's in the presence of anything else, his holiness has an impact on them. And so if there is anything impure in God's presence, it would be consumed, which creates this tension. Moses, come near, but Moses, don't come near. You can't come near. And we'll see this later on in the book of Exodus as well. When the Israelites have their, the big Exodus, when they come out of, uh, of Egypt and come to Horeb, the mountain of God, and God descends with fire. You've got fire in both places, haven't you? The fire of the burning bush and the fire when God descends on the mountain. And when God descends on the mountain uh, and the people of Israel are there, they are told, don't come up the mountain. Don't even touch the mountain. Moses is to go up. But they can't. And one of the first things God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verse 24 is, the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. Isn't that interesting? The Lord could break out against them if they come up the mountain. Do you see this tension again? God bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them to this mountain, to himself, and yet saying, but you can't come up. You can't come near. And this is the tension of the Bible, actually. How can people be in the presence of a holy God? How can we ever come into the presence of the Holy God. This is a tension that runs from Genesis 3 onwards. And we were reminded by the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Queen's funeral last week that we will all come before God. Every one of us. And shouldn't that make us sit up? I wonder how many people hearing that just, it just Went, went over their heads it, or just brushed past them. And yet, that is an incredible thing. We will, each of us, come before 
the living God, the holy God. What does the Bible suggest will happen if we come before the holy God? Well, the Bible says the result will be terrible if sinners enter the presence of the holy God. Now, people sometimes play this down, don't they? They will say, well, maybe we're not that bad. Maybe we're, we're okay, really. We're not that unholy. We're, we're all right. But the Bible tells us, no, we really are that bad. And God should know. Or maybe people say, God isn't really that holy. He's all right. He can deal with a bit of sin in his presence, a bit of unholiness. But this is where we need to see the evidence of the Bible. Moses was to come to God, but couldn't. The Israelites were to come to God, but couldn't for fear that he might break out against them. We worship a holy God. And yet, of course, there is a solution. There is a way to be holy. And it isn't about us living the perfect life or trying harder. It's not a holiness we achieve, it's a holiness we can receive. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he did so to take our wrongdoing, to bear our sin, to take the fire we deserve. So that the result is, uh, well, described for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. See, that verse is saying, by the blood of Jesus, you can come into the most holy place. You can come into God's presence with confidence, it says. Not arrogance, not brashly, but yet with confidence. A confidence Moses didn't have there. That we can come into the presence of a holy God. And so Hebrews tells us, it goes on to say, so since we can do that, let us draw near to God. What an incredible thing, isn't it? That we can come into the presence of God without fear of being destroyed. In fact, more than that, it's not just without fear of being destroyed. We have the awesome privilege through Christ, through his death, of being able to come into the presence of this holy God, this awesome God, and call him Father. We can relate to him with intimacy and love. When we die and come before God, we will either come to a fire or a father. The difference will be whether we have come to Jesus to be made holy by his blood. But here's the thing. If you have come to Jesus, do you still treat God as a fire or as a father? Some still treat God as a fire, as if we can't draw near, as if we still need to hide our face, as if we, we can't get close to him. That is, they, they still treat him with fear and terror when everything has been done by Jesus so that you and I can enter his presence and call him Father. 
Of course, there is still a right fear of God, but it isn't a fear that keeps distance, but a fear that means we don't treat sin lightly. We are to draw near, to come in through Jesus, and we need to do so. But coming to God wasn't the end point for Moses. He didn't just stay at the burning bush for the rest of his life. We see there is come and there is also go. So our second point is go. The Lord speaks to Moses in verse 7. He says, and I won't read it all out, but he talks about the fact he's seen what's happening in Egypt. It's interesting, the senses that are used. Verse 7, I've seen what's going on, and then I've heard the crying out, and I'm concerned, he says. And so he says, verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. I've come down. This is the moment of action. God's saying, now I'm going to rescue them. And uh, he says uh, uh, that he's going to take them out, that he's going to take them out of Egypt to the land, to a land, a spacious land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is saying it's a great land. He says where it is. uh, And he says again that he's heard the cry of the Israelites. And then he says, just over the page, so you need to be on page 60, verse 10, he says to Moses, so now go. I'm sending you. Notice that. He says, I've come down. I'm going to rescue. So Moses, you go. That's how God's going to do it. I'm going to rescue them. And Moses, I'm going to do it through you. And so Moses answers in verse 11. He asks a question. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, that is a good question. God, you're going to send me? Who am I to do this? And the answer is, well, Moses is an outcast, isn't he? He's a foreigner. He's been away from the Israelites for a long time. Who is he? Well, he's no one really now. He's an outcast with no real reason to think that if he goes back, the Israelites or the Egyptians are going to welcome him back. And so God answers with the most reassuring answer possible. Verse 12, and God said, I will be with you. Isn't that great? He doesn't do what we tend to do in these kind of situations. If someone says, I, you know, who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. I can't do it. We then focus on them and say, no, no, come on. You'll be all right. You can do it. But God doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say... Now, now, Moses, you'll be fine. No, he says, I will be with you. That's the most important. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. What matters is, I'll be with you. And he gives him a sign. It's an interesting sign, isn't it? Verse 12, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, that's not an immediate sign, is it? God God will give him immediate signs, like um, the staff that he'll throw on the ground, which will become a snake. You know, that happens there and then. But this sign is one which he's not going to see unless he trusts God and goes and does what God says. Then he will see it later on. 
it's one which depends on Moses trusting God, growing in faith. But the most important thing here is God saying, I will be with you. And so our second point actually goes to God, uh, go and God goes with you. And so Moses then asks the right next question. He says, verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, asking what is his name, what is your name, God, that's not just saying, give me a word, give me the name, you know, is it Bob, is it Jeff, is it Jim, you know, what's your name? It's not just that. Someone's name back then represented who they are. So when Moses says, you know, what's your name, he's saying, who are you? What's your character? What kind of God are you? And God answers with the words, the famous words, I am who I am. This is what you'd say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. And then the Lord goes on, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Now, when you get Lord there, capital letters, it's a form of the word I am. So whenever you see that in the Bible, you see it a lot, Lord, capital letters, it's a form of I am, which people would often uh, speak of as being Yahweh, they might pronounce it that way, or Jehovah, um, but it's that I am, it's a use of that. And he says, the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is the name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. It's the name, I am. And so when Moses says, who are you? He says that, I am who I am. Now, what is God getting across in that? We just need to spend a few moments on that because this is the significant thing. If God's saying the big thing is, I'm going to be with you, and he says, who are you? He says, I am who I am. What does that mean? What does that signify? Well, actually, it signifies a lot of things. And if you look up in the commentaries or theological books, you can see a whole load of things that they will put there. I'm going to give you three things that are going to come up on the screen about what's significant about that name or about the, the phrase, I am who I am. Three things. First one is this. Eternal and unchangeable. His name, I am, is in the present tense. God is saying, I am. And he says, that's going to be my name for all generations. In other words, I always am. I am. I am always present. He always has been and always will be the I am. Eternally present and unchangeable. He is always fully who he is which is unlike us, because we tend to, well, for us, we tend to look forward to who we will be, or we look back on who we were, don't we? We're either growing and developing and thinking, well, one day I'll be this, or we look back and go, I once was that. We're either growing and developing or deteriorating, aging and becoming less, just to cheer you up. And often, actually, we're both. We might be physically deteriorating, but actually, in some ways, in wisdom, we hope that we're developing. So we're not necessarily always just doing one or the other. We can be both developing and decaying. But 
that's the way we are as humans. We're either becoming or we're becoming less. Not so with God. He is permanently the I am. He is always fully who he is. He does not develop and so become better, and he doesn't decay and so become worse. He is always and always will be who he is perfectly. Good, now you've got your head around that. I'm going to move on to the next one which is his self-existent. Sorry, I'm going to fire these things out at you. We can talk about them more afterwards if you want. I will come back to the big point of this in a few moments. If you find this too hard, too head-stretching, that's fine. Try to stick with me. I'll draw you back if you happen to drift. He is self-existent. Philip Ryken, in his book, says this. The Hebrew verb to be is flexible enough to allow the divine name to be translated as he who causes to be. Everything owes its life and being to God, but God is independent. He does not owe his being or his attributes to another. He simply exists all by himself. Okay, so Philip Reichen there is saying, if you can, it's obviously got scope to translate this as he who causes to be, but God himself doesn't have a cause. So he causes everything else to exist, but he himself doesn't have a cause, doesn't have a start. Now, we know, don't we, everything has a beginning, something that caused it. Every being does, you do, you depended on your parents to exist. But not so with God. God does not need anything else. He exists independently of everything. He does not depend on anything else to exist. And that is demonstrated, it's like there's a visual illustration of this in the burning bush. The fact that the bush burns but doesn't burn up is a sort of demonstration of this. It's like God. God exists but doesn't rely on something else. Because if if a fire relies on fuel like a bush to burn, once the fuel is gone, the fire goes out. Not so with God. He exists and doesn't rely on anything else to exist. He is the I am. Last one. He's self-determining. Yeah, that's fairly clear, isn't it? I think it, when Moses says, what's your name? Who are you? God says, I am who I am. That is, I determine who I am. Which means we are not at liberty to define God and who he is, to come up with our own idea. God is not like a piece of Play-Doh where we can say, well, we can mould him and shape him to be who we want him to be. No, God says, I am who I am. You see, we can't say of God, well, I like to think of him as being my friend or as a kind of Father Christmas figure or far off and distant or I like to think of him as this or that or the other. In the end, it doesn't really matter what you think God is. The issue is, who is he? And he says, I am who I am. We can't summarise God or reduce him down to one aspect of his being. You see, he doesn't say, well, I am the God of war, or the God of prosperity, or the God of anger, or the God of love. We are, after all, dealing with the infinite God of the universe. Oh, he is loving. He can be angry. 
but we can't sort of summarize him, narrow him down to one of those attributes. Uh, The Bible does say God is love, but even there, we can't just import what we like to think of as being love. I can't then just define love the way I want to. I need God to tell me what love is. And he is not love to the exclusion of the rest of his attributes. He is all that he is. He says, I am who I am. We can't reduce him down and make him the way we want him to be. That is not our job. The right response, rather, is to discover who he is and bow before him. Okay, that's a bit on I am who I am. The big thing, though, is that God says to Moses, I am, and I am the one who goes with you. Look not at yourself, Moses, and your weakness and your inadequacies, but look at God who goes with you. You go sent by him. What difference would that make? What difference would this make to Moses being confronted by this God, the I am, who says, I'm going to be with you? Don't you think that would be an enormous boost? That would be incredible, wouldn't it? And then God gives him instructions. We, we don't have time to go into that. God gives him the instructions towards the uh, second half of the chapter. We didn't have it read. Um, but God tells Moses, this is where you're going to go. You're going to go to the elders of the Israelites, tell them the plan. Then you're to go to Pharaoh. The elders of the Israelites will listen to you. Pharaoh won't listen to you. And that's the plan. This is what you've got to go and do. And we'll see that in coming chapters. But the big thing is, as I've been stressing, this is the God who goes with Moses. What about us? We read in the New Testament of times when Jesus used this name for himself. When speaking with the Jewish leaders at one point in John chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And everyone there knew Jesus was taking on himself this name, the name of God. Which is why the religious leaders then tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. Because it would be blasphemous if it weren't true. But the evidence of Jesus' life, death and resurrection point to to the fact that he is the I am. And furthermore, at the end of the gospel, at the end of Matthew's gospel, after Jesus has died and risen to life again, Jesus sends us, just in a kind of similar way to the way God sent Moses. In Matthew chapter 28, I'll just read this a little bit for you. There is such parallels here with what God says to Moses, or what God does with Moses. Jesus, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Do you notice this sort of uh, Jesus saying, I've got all authority in heaven and on earth, now I'm sending you. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you. Jesus says, I go with you into this week. Jesus, the I am, 
the one for whom all those things were true, eternal, unchangeable, and so on. He says, I'm with you as you go into this week. It makes a big difference when someone's with you, doesn't it? Whether it's a little child uh, wanting their parents with them when they go in for an injection, or if it's a 90-year-old going into an appointment at the doctor's that you're not looking forward to, it makes a big difference if someone is with you. Even if, actually, the parent can't make a difference for the child, it's still going to hurt. And actually, even if the person going in with the 90-year-old can't change the diagnosis. But imagine if the person with you could change things. Imagine if you go into this week with someone who can change everything. The one who is the I am. If you're a Christian, you do. That is who goes with you into this week. Does that make a difference to you? It should, shouldn't it? Maybe this week looks a lot like last week for you. Maybe this week has big challenges. Maybe it's looking like it's going to be difficult for you to live for Jesus. This week it's going to be hard. Maybe you look forward to this week. Maybe you dread this week. Maybe you approach it with sadness. Maybe you approach it with excitement. However you go, however you go out of the doors today, if you're trusting in Jesus, he goes with you. The I am is with you. So here are our two points. They are come and go. And the order of them is very important. When becoming a Christian, we must come to God first. We can't just go thinking we go to work for God. We come to God first. We must do through Jesus. But as we go on in the Christian life, we need to keep doing this. Keep this pattern of coming to Jesus first, coming to God day by day, being in his presence, and then going out, sent by him, knowing we go with him. And we need to keep that pattern. We've got to keep coming back to God. I'm just going to finish with a quote from Alec Matir from his uh, book on Exodus. I found it a really helpful little quote. So let me give it to you as a way to finish. The Lord has a training school. He says, come into my presence Satan will, of course, always seek to reverse this procedure, reminding us all the time of the needs of the world and of the desperate necessity to get on with the work. The Lord, however, is saying, just wait a bit. I'm not in your sort of hurry. Come and linger in my presence. Satan says, no, think of the needy world. There are souls to be saved. Because he wants us to go out into the battlefield unarmed. He does not mind one bit if we go out to the Lord's battles, provided that we have no hope of winning when we get there. But the Lord says, no, come and stand with me for a bit. Come and listen to me. Service begins in the presence of the Lord spending time alone with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you drew Moses to yourself and that we can come through Jesus to you. And we praise you that you commissioned Moses to go and we thank you that you commission us to go into this week 
as your people to go and make disciples and that you go with us, that Jesus promises to be with us. Would that, Father, be a great comfort to us and a strength to us and help us this week to keep coming into your presence, to be ready to go with you into whatever this week has. Amen.